Well, let me encourage you to take out your Bibles and open them up to Mark chapter 7, to the passage of Scripture that was read for us a few moments ago, Mark chapter 7. As you're finding your way there, yesterday I had the privileged opportunity of officiating uh, the wedding of two of our own, Jordan Limley and Sarah Wong. Excuse me, Jordan. Well done, well done, Jordan and Sarah Limley. So it's a pleasure to see you guys tonight. It's, uh, it was a true, truly just a remarkable time that, we're, that many of us were able to share yesterday and celebrate your union and your marriage, and we pray for great things uh, for your new family. Um, hey, getting ready for your wedding, I must be, I, I did take a shower. Uh, I, I, I took a shower, I, I trimmed my beard, I, I found my suit, ironed it out. My wife took care, of my, took care of my shirt. I'm a terrible ironer. I, don't, I can't stay in the... I burn shirts, and I, and I kind of melt it into a crease at, where creases don't belong. And so Kim was kind enough to take, that, take care of that for me. And I fixed my hair. I trimmed my beard down a little bit, and I got cleaned up. I, I cleaned myself up because of what that day represented. See, that was no ordinary Saturday afternoon. When we gathered together to partake in that ceremony, it was no ordinary ceremony. It was a unique ceremony, a special ceremony, a sacred ceremony for two people that we love and we cherish, two people that we wanted to honor. And so I cleaned up. What would it have said to them or what would it have said about that moment had I shown up in my Playdays t-shirt and my sweat shorts and my flip-flops with disheveled hair and smelling, sweating like I had just come from the gym or something along those lines, had I stepped into that moment in that capacity, it would, have, it would have spoken volumes about what I thought about them and what I thought about that ceremony. It would have been treated like any other moment, any other people. It wouldn't have been revered. It wouldn't have been treasured. It wouldn't have been honored as a sacred time and sacred space as we saw them share vows and enter into a marriage together. Now I share that with us. With, I share that with you, off the bat this morning because this evening because we're stepping into a passage tonight where the in, initial relevancy of it might seem hard to find. Because when you step into Mark chapter seven and you read beginning of verse one all the way down to verse twenty-three, you're going to see Jesus engaged in a conflict and engaged in a conversation with some Pharisees, some religious representatives from Jerusalem, and they are talking about cleanliness. They're talking about uh, what, it, what makes a person unclean versus, and what makes a person clean. How, what is that process? And the whole conversation is spilling over from some rules and some rituals and some ceremonies that God gave Israel back in the book of Leviticus. And one of the things that we need to realize as we want to try to find the relevancy of this type of of conversation for you and I living here in 21st century Seattle is we want to understand that the ceremonial laws, these purification rituals that the Pharisees have added to and that they're trying to observe and they're, they're trying to find a cleansing through these rituals, all of it was designed to speak something about who God is and about who we are. It was, they, they served as type of a visual represent, representation and revelation of the character of God and the condition of humanity. And so when we talk about these, this idea of cleansing or being unclean and being made clean, we're talking about something that goes far beyond the 
external uh, practices that Israel carried for centuries in their worship. You see, the whole the whole reason for why God instructed Israel to follow these purification rituals and, and talked about the idea of cleansing and uncleansing is because they communicated, they spoke something about God's holiness and they revealed something about our unholiness. They, they, they spoke to our condition in a way that makes many of us uncomfortable in this space, but they spoke to our condition in such a way so that you and I might find refuge in the person and the work of Jesus. So it may at first glance seem uh, somewhat uh, unflattering of a picture, as it is an unflattering picture when you read verses 14 through 23. It may seem a little odd to listen in on Jesus' conversation earlier that, that Keith walked us through last week, but the relevancy of the purification laws and this entire conversation is found in what they communicate as they provided a visual aid uh, pointing people to the holiness of God in, in picture form and the unholiness of our humanity in picture form. But when you look at the conversation that Jesus is having in this, in this passage with these Pharisees, understand that Jesus agrees with the basic premise of what the ceremonial laws communicated. He agreed with the fact that God, his Father, is holy. And he agreed with the fact that humanity is fallen, or humanity is unclean, or humanity is um, unholy. He agreed with that premise. He believed, like the Pharisees did, that God is holy, humanity is unholy, and in order for unholy people to step into the presence of a holy God, purification must happen. Cleansing must occur. Jesus agreed with that. Where he and the Pharisees part ways is how that cleansing is to come about. Whereas the Pharisees viewed the, the problem of the fallen human condition in superficial terms and where they looked for superficial solutions to their condition, Jesus said, no, humanity's problem is an epic problem. And it requires an epic solution. And what you find in this small passage that we're reading today is the culmination of an epic story of redemption and cleansing that God has written out for his people and the way in which God has promised and has sought to set you and I, to set our hearts right, to make us clean, understanding that everything that this passage is pointing to has nothing to do with taking showers and getting haircuts and wearing the right clothes. Everything communicated in this passage is going after the condition of the human heart and what Jesus does to seize and to cleanse the human heart. You see, those, all of those rituals, they communicated something about the character of God, the character of our humanity, but then they also communicated the hope that we have in the fact that God wanted to one day set everything right for us. Ezekiel chapter 36, there's this incredible word that is spoken about what the Messiah would do, about what God's son would do when he showed up in the world as he's done in Jesus in this passage. And, and he makes a promise to us. He declares hope for our hearts when he says these words. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, God declares, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses 
and from all your idols I will cleanse you. This is the promise that was made long before Jesus arrived. And it is this mission that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection would ultimately fulfill. But in order for us to really appreciate this, in order for this passage that you read, and it might ruffle your feathers a little bit because it doesn't describe you very well. It doesn't, it doesn't paint a flattering portrait of your humanity or my humanity, but it is a passage. If we hear it, it will drive us to the cross, and we will see what Jesus did for us there, Lord willing, in a, in a fresh and an invigorating way as we see the cleansing his death on the cross provides for our hearts. And so the passage begins in verse 14. Again, coming out of this conversation he's had with the Pharisees about uh, really their hypocrisy in trying to depend upon these purification, purification rituals to, that if they had clean hands, then it doesn't really matter what was going on in their hearts. And Jesus says, no, that's wrong. I'm more concerned about your hearts than your hands. And then he says this in verse 14. And he called the people to him again. All these people who had been sitting under the Pharisees' teaching, everyone who was a part of this system that Jesus addresses earlier, he says he calls these people to him again and says to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. He says, guys, get close because what I have to tell you, I have an urgent clarification to give you because you guys have been fed some misconstrued understandings and application of my law and of what God's grace is all about. You, you're, you're missing me because you've been listening to the wrong voices in your life. So, so come close so I can clarify this for you. So he brings a disciple, he brings the people in, and he makes this statement. He says, to be clear, there is nothing outside a person that, is going, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then he goes on to give this illustration. The, many of the people left. They heard that and they really weren't into it. The disciples stuck around and Jesus pulls them even closer. And he clarifies what that means for them. He says in verse 18, Then are you also without understanding, referring to his disciples, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, referring to food and drink and those types of things, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him. And here's his graphic illustration. Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and then it's expelled, it becomes excrement. Whatever comes into your body from outside of the body, the food and the drink that you take, it doesn't defile you because it doesn't go to your heart. It goes into your stomach. It's a simple, brilliant illustration contrasting the Pharisees' superficial solutions to the human condition and Jesus' epic solution to the human condition. He's saying the issue that you need, guys need to be concerned about is the condition of your heart because it is what comes out of the heart that, that matters. It is what I've come to deal with. And so we consider Jesus' urgent clarification in this moment, recognizing that Jesus, yes, he, 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 has, uh, he describes our condition in a way that is not flattering, but it is a way that is true, and so we want to listen to him. You see, I, I think... You and I have a tendency to only listen to the voices that affirm us. And we're not willing to listen to voices that contradict us. We just want to be flattered. We just want to be praised. We just want to be adored. We want to be affirmed. Now, to be sure, Jesus affirms us. But he affirms us the right way. You see, Jesus in this passage, he's not speaking in therapeutic terms. He's speaking in moral terms. 
He's using moral categories to describe the human condition. And I wonder if in our therapeutic culture, we've gotten so far away from Jesus' understanding of the human condition that you and I cannot appropriately understand what he lived for and what he died for and what he rose from the grave for. And so although we hear all kinds of voices speaking about the human condition in this city, around this country, and globally, you and I will be wise to figure out, okay, I, I know what they say, I know what he says, I know what she says, I, I want to come in and I want to hear what Jesus says. Because if there is one expert on the human condition, it would be Jesus. And if you're here today and you're wondering, well, why should I listen to Jesus? I don't even know if I believe in this guy. Where does his credibility come from? What makes him different from any other religious leader, from any other philosopher, from any other professor, from any other teacher? Well, the big difference between Jesus and them is found in the simple fact that Jesus rose from the grave. If you find yourself in a conversation with a person who resurrected, You may want to listen to them. And if Jesus rose from the grave, then we need to pay attention to what he says about the human condition. And I know some of you perhaps do not know if you believe in Jesus. You're not yet a follower of Christ. And if that's your situation right now, let me encourage you. As, as you think about what Jesus says here, you might want to get hung up on some things. You might want to, well, he uses the word sexual immorality. What does that refer to? Is he getting to, like, like does that refer to homosexuality? Does that refer to pornography? What all does that refer to? And so, so you might get hung up on that. And you, may want, might not want to, you might want to tune out because that type of moral category is denounced by Jesus in this passage. And let me encourage you, don't, don't stop by focus, don't, don't, don't get hung up on the categories and the descriptions that Jesus lays out here. Instead, I would encourage you to focus on whether or not Jesus really rose from the, from the grave. As you're exploring Christianity, focus on the main, the heart of Christianity, and if Jesus, if you get to the point where you say, yes, Jesus really did rise from the grave, not only is the evidence powerful, but the Spirit is opening my eyes to, to trust that Jesus really did rise from the grave. If that is the case, then we can hear him and listen to him and not be afraid of what he has to say about us and about our moral depravity in this passage. So we want to tune in. We want to hear Jesus. I think this is what Jesus is encouraging us to do when he says, hear me, all of you, and understand I am the expert on the human condition, so listen to me. My credibility comes from the fact that I came from God. I lived, I died, and I rose from the grave. You can trust me. You can hear me. You don't have to be afraid of what I have to say about you. Because even though I know everything that is true within you, all the stuff that could defile you and that does defile you, even though I know all of that, I know it better than you do, I still love you. I still lived for you. I still died for you. I still rose for you. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. And so we want to listen to what he has to say about this. And the first thing we see about this urgent clarification on the human condition is that sin dwells within the heart. Now, it's a powerful, it's a, it seem, at first glance, it may seem uh, like a simple statement. Yes, sin dwells within the heart. But understand, the heart represented the center of the human personality. It represented the center of the human personality. It, it was the core of a person's identity, encompassing their will, encompassing our wills, encompassing our desires, everything about us. He's saying sin dwells there. 
In other words, sin isn't a peripheral problem in our lives. Sin is a much bigger deal than we realize. It sits at the core of who we are. Sin and identity often are woven together, especially from Jesus' perspective. He sees sin and identity woven together. This is why you see interchangeably, interchanged all through, uh, a few times in this passage in verse 20. He talks about these things coming out of a person. But then in verse 21, he talks about things coming out of the heart. Person and heart, interchangeable terms, because sin dwells within the heart. It sits at the core of who we are. So we're talking about the most important thing a human being can talk about. We're talking about your heart. We're talking about your identity. And Jesus says that sin dwells within that spot. And if sin dwells within, then that, that affects how we understand the human condition because it means that you and I must not be pushed and swayed in our therapeutic society to believe ultimately that sin is nurtured rather than nature. We have a tendency to blame sin on environment. We have a tendency to blame bad decisions on poor systems of education or poor systems as this, that, and the other. Now, certainly, nurture plays a part in it. Certainly, we are conditioned and we are compressed into particular molds, and the way that sin manifests itself in our lives differs in large part based on where we grow up or how, what f our family life was like. Certainly, nurture plays a part, but Jesus doesn't want us to use nurture as a scapegoat because nurture and poor nurture is a poor justifier. According to Jesus, sin sits at the core of who we are. We cannot blame our condition on our environment or our surrounding. We must look at the heart. Now, in addition to celebrating Jordan and Sarah's wedding yesterday, Kim and I celebrated our 11th anniversary. Been married 11 years, so we're pretty pleased to make it. You know, we're still going after it. And sure, over the course of 11 years, Kim and I are going to fight sometimes, right? We're going to argue. We're, we're not going to treat one another perfectly. I know some of you have that impression of us, but it's not true. We, we certainly argue. We certainly bicker. I know how to push Kim's buttons, and I'll tell her that. She'll, she'll get in an argument, and she'll say something like, stop pushing my buttons. And I'll, in my worst moments, I'll say, well, why are your buttons so big? <laughs> it's not a good thing to say. And so, but, you know, you think about that. We have that kind of language in our lives, right? We talk about pressing one another's buttons. And usually that has to do with condition, right? It has to do with nurture. It has to do with somebody else acting upon us, pushing our buttons, making us feel a certain way or think a certain way or choose a certain thing. But let me ask you, where did those buttons come from? Where did they come from? See, our buttons are present within us because sin dwells within the heart. The raw materials for sin exist in the human condition at birth. And yes, as we grow and as we develop, those buttons are pushed and formed and, and affected in various ways so that the way sin manifests itself in my life may be different from your life, but none of it is justifiable. And none of it can we come to a holy God and say, well, it's not my fault, so-and-so pushed my buttons. Jesus is going to say, well, where did that button come from? That button came from the fact that you are a sinner, not only by choice, but by nature, because sin dwells within the heart. But not only does sin dwell within the heart, according to Jesus, 
sin is what defiles the heart. It defiles the heart. This is the language. It's, it's a strong metaphor. He's saying sin makes people dirty. It makes our hearts dirty, defiled. This is where shame comes from. This is where guilt comes from. This is where fear comes from. Sin defiles the heart. And I think all of us kind of know this instinctively, which is why when we sin and if our consciences are, have not been seared and, and we're thinking in terms of God's holiness, in terms of what Jesus teaches and what Jesus died for, there's something within us that, that when we sin, I think it, we, we feel kind of the defilement of a particular sin. And I think this shows up all over the place. Why do you think in movies, these artists who are putting scenes together and who are cutting and editing a movie and telling a story and they move from one scene to the next, why do you think so often, pay attention to it as you watch movies and as you watch TV shows, why do you think immediately after a person sins, usually in the very next scene, they're taking a shower? Whether it be by having an affair whether it be through uh, some type of greedy practice or some abusive act, it usually, a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times, the very next scene is a person taking a shower, kind of echoing this condition within us that sin defiles the human heart so that there is a sense deep within every human being of knowing there's something about me that's just not clean. We all have shame in our lives. We all have guilt in our lives. We all have fear in our lives. And Jesus describes these defilements in verses 20 and 22. And, and the list isn't, isn't, the list is intense. Listen to what he says. It's broad. It's all-encompassing. He says, out of the heart of humanity, men and women, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and then here's the word, and they defile a person. This is why we just can't be, we don't feel very secure in our relationship with God a lot of times. This is why we do not feel very secure in our relationship with one another a lot of times. This is why we do not feel very secure in our relationship with the world a lot of times, because there's this defilement within us that, that alienates us from a right relationship with God, from a right relationship with one another, and a right relationship with the world that we live in. These things alienate people from God, from self, and each other. And if you read through the text humbly, you're going to find yourself in the crosshairs of one of these terms. Sin is the most egalitarian condition in the world. Sin is what makes every person on the planet equal. It's this condition. It's the fact that sin defiles our hearts, and we all then need cleansing. We all need healing. We all need help. We all need hope. But we might go one step further. Sin dwells within the heart. Sin defiles the heart, but sin also dominates the heart. Not only does sin dwell in the heart, sin dominates the heart. You saw this earlier in Ezekiel chapter 36, where after, after the prophet talks about how God, God says he's going to cleanse us, he's going to clean us from all of our uncleannesses. What does he say in the very next phrase? He says, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. All the idols that dominate you, all of the things that seize your heart, all of the things that have captured your affections and your attention apart from and more than your creator. God says, I'm going to cleanse you from the sin that defiles your heart or that dominates your heart. This is why when you read through the gospel of Mark, it's fascinating 
Mark's favorite description and his favorite metaphor for what Jesus accomplished on the cross, he uses this word ransom. He says in Mark chapter 10 that the Son of Man would give his life as a ransom for many. You know what that word speaks to. That word speaks to liberation. It speaks to you and I being under someone else's power and control. And then Jesus' death is a ransom for us. It sets us free. It overcomes that which is dominating our hearts. This is what the gospel does for us. So yes, sin dwells within us, sin defiles us, sin dominates us in many ways, but Jesus has promised to do something about it. But before we say exactly what Jesus did, let me, let me back up just a moment and, and encourage you not to do what so many of us tend to do when we hear something like this. What we do so often when we hear something like this is that we try to shirk it, we try to escape it, we try to ignore it or overcome it through other channels. Sometimes that takes the form of wanting to change a location or change a situation. We find ourselves in a situation where a lot of these, these attitudes and actions are manifesting themselves in our lives and, and wondering, well, if that's going to change, then I need to, I need to change community groups, or I need to change missional community, or I need to change church, or I need to change this, or I need to change that circumstance. We may even go to God and, and pray, God, would you change my circumstance, or would you change this situation so that, so that I can thrive better, because all these things seem to be dominating me, and I'm having a hard time. But, but understand, one of the reasons that God, and I know I've had this question come to me from some of you, one of the reasons God doesn't always and many times does not answer your questions for change as it relates to your circumstance is because God's not interested in changing your circumstance. He's interested in changing your heart. So he oftentimes leads you, leaves you where you are and by his grace he nurtures what he's doing within you so that your heart is changed and not just your circumstance because you can move. You can change, you can adjust your environment and yet carry the same heart with you wherever you go and that would be a tragedy. We don't want that going down in our lives. So let me encourage you, if however this is wrestling within you, however these words may be riling you up or this portrait of the human condition given by Jesus, if it's riling you up, don't bail, don't abandon, don't try to change situations, don't ask God, to, well, they say this there whatever, I'm going to go somewhere. Don't do that. You'll be doing your own growth a disservice. Oftentimes, God doesn't answer our prayers for a change in our circumstances is because he's concerned with changing our hearts. But then once this stuff starts to, starts to surface, once the mud starts to come up and the waters get churned in our hearts, we begin to think about these things. Sometimes we try to take matters into our own hands and say, okay, well, I'm going to fix my situation or I'm going to fix my heart or I'm going to fix my life. And so in order to deal with these dynamics, many of us oftentimes are tempted to turn to what might be described as superficial non-solutions. Superficial non-solutions, solutions that we, we, we cling to to try to scrub ourselves clean, to scrub out our feeling of shame or to scrub out our feeling of guilt or to scrub out that which is defiling us and dominating us. All these superficial solutions, none of which work, one of them takes the form of religion. You see, when you start feeling guilt and shame, guilt and shame drives many people to get religious. The problem is, many of those who get religious in response to this being churned up within them is that they kind of follow suit after the Pharisees. 
You see, religions often try to regulate cleanliness through ritual. They regulate cleanliness through external acts and external deeds. They, they say, if you want to get clean, then you need to get some type of religious disinfectant and squirt your body down. Make some type of change, some type of adjustment. There are some people who even go into ministry, like I'm doing, uh, in an effort to bring cleansing and healing to their heart. They're not really perhaps in the ministry because they want to love others and, and uphold the gospel. It's because they're trying to justify themselves by what they do and how well they do it. A guy by the name of C.H. Spurgeon said many years ago about people who are looking to get into ministry and lead out in churches. He says, do not, do not, whatever you do, do not preach the gospel in an effort to save your own soul. Religion cannot get after the heart. We don't want to just take religion and pile it onto our fallen condition or pile it onto our uncleanliness and then just kind of stack up all these things that we're doing, hoping that one day we'll put enough on there that it'll just kind of crowd out the, the defilement or the sin within. And if we do, we're going to be finding ourselves simply hard, as hard as the Pharisees are portrayed in the Gospel of Mark and in the, in the other Gospels as well. But not everybody turns to religion as a type of superficial non-solution. Some people, instead of going to religion, they embrace non-religion. They go in the opposite direction. They're not trying to cover their feeling of guilt and shame through religious rituals and routines and being good. Instead, they're, they're trying to escape those feelings of guilt and shame and fear by distracting themselves. And in our society, it usually takes the form of busyness. We just pursue an ir irreligious, secular life where we just kind of fill our lives up with all kinds of ambitions, all kinds of activities. If we keep ourselves distracted, then we don't have to deal with that sense of defilement that may be plaguing beneath the surface. A few years ago, I shared this with you um, a while back, but New York Times came out with an article talking about how our culture is addicted to busyness. And one of the reasons why he says that our cult, the writer says that our culture is addicted to busyness is because of this dynamic. The writer goes on in this article to say this, and perhaps it describes some of you. It says, busyness serves as a kind of hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. He said, we're busy because of our own ambition or drive or anxiety because, get this, we're addicted to busyness and we dread what we'll have to face in its absence. In other words, we're not trying to pile religion on top of our defilement, trying to cover it. We're trying to escape it or distract ourselves from it by staying busy because we're afraid of what we have to face if we turn Netflix off or if we stand still longer than 30 seconds and we begin to think about the condition of our hearts we begin to think about our relationship with God and our relationship with other people instead of facing that stuff we distract ourselves from it and perhaps those are the most common ways that you and I try to find these superficial non-solutions religion irreligion but there's a couple others I would I would put before you some of us get very political in this picture you know, a lot of times we look at the world and say, well, the problem with the world is outside of us. The problem with the world is the other people. The problem with the world is uh, those who are blue or those who are red or whatever the case may be, red state, blue state. The problem is out there. And so in order to uh, kind of deal with the human condition, we just kind of hide in a political movement and we champion a political a politician who maybe can step up onto the scene one day and legislate morality. 
Maybe they can legislate morality which that will heal uh, my life and heal other people's lives and we put a lot of stock in politicians and then one day we wake up in a situation like we're in now. Like, well, what do we do in this moment? Well, obviously that's a poor hope. We don't want to put our hope in any political movement or any political party. We don't want to turn to politics and start advocating for things that are unjust or things that the kingdom of God is not pressing us into as a way of avoiding that which is true about us and that which is true about everyone else, whether you're red state or blue state, whatever the case may be. But not only does some of us then turn to politics, another way in which we may distract ourselves is through pop culture. And we may not be distracting ourselves with busyness. We may just try to distract ourselves by trying to find some sense of transcendence in pop culture. And the way that this happens is we look to celebrities and we look at their examples, we look at their lives, we look at their achievements, we look at their wealth, and we kind of adore them and we follow them and we listen to them. We're interacting with them on social, tr- social media, whatever the case may be, hoping that their transcendence as celebrities can pull us out of ourselves and maybe draw us out of our own sense of inadequacy or our own sense of defilement. This is one reason why so many pop magazines are so popular. It's one reason why so many... Uh, forms of entertainment are so popular because there is to be found in some cases a sense of transcendence by following celebrities and paying attention to what's going on in pop culture. There's a lady by the name of Christina Kelly. She served as an editor for Young Women's Magazine and she, she edited several popular magazines, YM, Jane, and Sassy, and a few others. And Tim Keller actually shares her words in a, in a book that he wrote on the Gospel of Mark, and I, I find them incredibly challenging and insightful. This is what she says about our infatuation with celebrity and trying to draw us out of ourselves by finding transcendence there. She says this. She's not a Christian, but she asked the question, why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory. To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb with this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuctioned stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. Listen to her language. She says, so we worship them. We worship them because we feel inconsequential. But doing it makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but their fame makes us feel insignificant. She says, I am a part of this whole process as an editor. No wonder, listen to her language, no wonder I feel soiled at the end of the day. Defiled, soiled inconsequential. She's not using the language of sin, but she's certainly describing that condition within. She's saying that these idols that we cling to and we look to to pull us out of ourselves, that they're insufficient. We still feel soiled and inadequate and inconsequential at the end of the day. And what we discover in this moment is that these superficial non-solutions are utterly inadequate to go after the root of our condition in the heart. And so rather than turning to these superficial non-solutions for cleansing and for purification and for hope, whether it be to escape or to cover or whatever the case may be, let's listen to this passage and let us drive us, let it drive us to the gospel. Because believe it or not, this passage contains the gospel. 
the gospel is declared here. And it's not declared obviously. It's kind of hard to see, but it is present there. And it's found in a very strange place. Look at the end of verse 19. You're going to hear the gospel's declaration in a very strange phrase that Mark includes at the end of this verse. Listen to what he says. It's a, parent, it's a parenthesis. Your Bibles probably have it in parentheses to show that this was a comment Mark made in the middle of Jesus' discourse to separate what Jesus was saying and kind of his perspective. And this is what he says. He says, thus Jesus declared all foods clean. That's gospel. Like, what? Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, to understand this, you have to think about how Mark, where Mark is writing from. Understand that when Mark writes these words, he's writing after Jesus has resurrected. He's writing after Jesus has ascended and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of, of God. He's, he's writing under the new covenant. He's writing in light of everything Jesus lived for, died for, and rose from the grave for. So he's writing from that perspective and he's communicating this statement, saying this explosive statement, Jesus declared all foods clean. What he's cueing us into in that moment is that Jesus has ultimately pulled the rug out from underneath the Pharisees' identity. The Pharisees and every other devout Jew, one of the most distinguishing features of their lives, what set them apart from every other nation and every other people group on the planet were three things. One, they observed the Sabbath. Two, they practiced circumcision. And three, they observed a particular diet. The food that they ate and the food that they didn't eat set them apart in observance of the ceremonial laws and the purification laws in the Old Testament. But something changed when Mark is writing these words. The situation has changed. The basis of the Pharisees' identity has been pulled out from under them because Mark understood that the food laws and what you eat or what you avoided eating couldn't ultimately cleanse the heart. Those were just signals and signposts pointing you to a deeper cleansing. And so when he says Jesus declared all food clean, he's saying Jesus has ushered in a new day, a new era. Jesus has fulfilled the law. This is the gospel declared. Jesus fulfilled the law. What that means is Jesus lived a perfectly obedient and pure life. He never failed to love his father completely. He never failed to love people compassionately, even when he described them in these ways. He was still loving people compassionately. And he fulfilled the law so that when he lived his life and he died on the cross and he rose from the grave, he ushered in a new day where cleansing would be found not through rituals of the Old Testament, but cleansing would be found where it should have been found all along. And that is faith and hope in the Messiah, in the, in the Christ, ultimately in Jesus. Paul would clarify this in Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what Paul says there. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one, because of this new day that we're all living under, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Listen to this. This may be the most theologically important statements in all of the New Testament as far as understanding the Old Testament. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying all of those purification rituals were intended to prepare you for what Jesus would live for and die for and rise from the grave for. 
They were all intended to communicate a deeper reality that had nothing to do with externalities, but had everything do to do with the condition of a human's heart. And Mark, in verse 19, is saying, he's reminding us of how Jesus fulfilled the law. And all of a sudden, Jesus becomes God's epic solution to our epic problem. Jesus becomes the one who can do everything to make us clean. And this is precisely how his death on the cross is described. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus' death is described as a cleansing act, as a purifying act. Listen to Hebrews chapter, 11, chapter 1, verse 3, where the writer there says, that Jesus made purification for our sins. This is how he cleansed us. He died on the cross, and after making purification for sins, Jesus then ascended, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you hear the language of cleansing, of purification? Jesus' death did something for us. It effected something for us. He accomplished something for us. And what he accomplished was our cleansing, our purification, so that you and I can live our lives free from the tyranny of defilement, free from the tyranny of sin's domination, free from the tyranny of how sin wants to shape and form our identity. Jesus has ushered in a new day, a new definition, saying, I've made purification for your sins, past, present, and future. But not only do you hear the gospel declared as Jesus fulfilled the law and Jesus made purification for sins, just as Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, after Jesus made purification for sins, it says that Jesus then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And do you want to know what Jesus is doing from that position? Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. And Jesus, who was seated on the throne, said this, declared this, Behold, I am making all things new. This is what he's doing after making purification for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of his father. He's reigning and ruling over the universe. That's epic. He's reigning and ruling there. And from that position, he's saying, Behold, I am making all things new, starting with you and me. Starting with our hearts, starting with our cleansing, starting with our purification. This is what Jesus is doing right now in this moment. He's making all things new. Let me remind you of Ezekiel chapter 36 because it's unbelievable. You go back to Ezekiel 36 and right after, right after God says, one day I'm going to cleanse you, I'm going to make you clean, listen to what he says in the very next verse. Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning of verse 26, right after saying, I will cleanse you, he then says, and I will give you what? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that place where sin dwells, that place where sin dominates, that place where sin uh, calls all the shots in our lives. He says, I'm going to remove that from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, one that will beat after me, one that will beat towards me, one that says, in Jesus, because of Jesus, I can be honest about all my defilements, all my struggles, because I know that Jesus is making all things new. And he's starting with this new heart. So Jesus, so he says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And now you will be able to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now you can live a life not defiled and dominated by sin, but you can actually live a life that progressively grows towards practical holiness. 
Jesus is making all things new, and he's starting with you and me, giving us new hearts. And when he gives us new hearts, get this, he makes us new people. Not as individuals, but as a community. Now, one of the most profound dynamics of this passage in Mark chapter 7 happens when you and I consider the context. It is not a coincidence that this passage is followed immediately after a moment where Jesus goes and he ministers to a non-Jewish woman. And the reason why that is significant is because there's a relationship between the food laws of Israel and the peoples on the earth. And in many Jewish minds who viewed, who observed the food laws, they had a perspective on people who were not Jewish and they viewed them as what? They viewed them as unclean. And then you consider how Mark is actually writing this gospel, having been heavily influenced by the guy who discipled him, the apostle Peter. And if you're familiar with Peter's story, there comes a moment in Acts chapter 10 where Peter discovers this lesson. He sees this connection between Jesus fulfilling the law and his ability and capacity to love people who are not like him, to love people who are non-Jewish. Acts chapter 10, there's a night where Peter goes to sleep and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees uh, these sheets coming down from heaven and on it all types of food that he considered unclean. And he hears a voice from heaven telling Peter, arise and eat. And Peter objects. He says, no, I'm not going to eat that. I will not take anything that will defile me. And, and then God says in reply, do not call what God has called clean, do not call common. And Peter wakes up from the dream. He's like, what in the world does that mean? And then in the very next chapter, he goes and he meets with some Jewish leaders and they're talking about how the gospel is to go forth and to affect people, not just in their Jewish world, but the non-Jewish world, how the gospel was to go out and they were to take the gospel to people who were not like them, people who were not defined by diet or Sabbath keeping or circumcision, people they considered unclean. God is now saying to Peter, because of this new heart awarded by the gospel, because of this new people he's forming in the church, this is to be a people that goes forth and engages all peoples with the reality of the human condition and the hope found in the gospel. This is the shift in Mark chapter 7. So this making all things new includes a new heart and a new people who now have a new capacity to love. We now have the new capacity to love people who are not like us, who may not share our skin color, who may not share other things externally in common with us. This is why the church should be simultaneously the most, should be a place where all are welcome to hear the gospel and all people are brought into an awareness of the gospel so that anyone who comes to trust in Jesus finds themselves standing shoulder to shoulder in the family of God and there are no classifications, there are no distinctions, and we do not look down upon any other person regardless of what's on the outside. We treat everyone with the dignity that the gospel endows upon them. In other words, when the gospel is applied, racism dies. This is suggested and thrown through Mark chapter 7. When we consider our shared human condition, that sin dwells within and that sin defiles the heart and that sin dominates us and everyone else, we begin to see that we share that in common with every other person on the planet. It's impossible for you to view yourself as superior to any other person or to any other race, regardless of their situation. It's impossible. And when you consider yourself saved and cleansed and made pure by the grace of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden your heart opens up to love like you've never loved before.
to relate to people in ways you've never related to. You're no longer living a life of suspicious, of suspicion and consumption. You are now living a life contributing to the welfare of everyone you come in contact with. Changes everything. Jesus, right now, is making all things new, and he's starting with you and me, cleansing us, giving us a new heart, making us a new people with a new capacity to love. And so we press into that as Jesus continues to nurture that nature within us, as he continues to nurture this new nature we have by grace. One of the ways that we do that every week is by coming to the table and partaking in the Lord's Supper. This is one of the ways that Jesus nurtures that new nature within us by reminding us of our shared salvation in Jesus. So we partake of the bread and we hear the words of the gospel every week saying the body of Christ given for you. And you dip it into the cup and you're reminded once again of the gospel, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins to make you clean, reminding you of this new reality. You are no longer defined by your sin or your defilement. You are now defined by what Jesus says about you through his life and his death and his resurrection. We're reminded of this every week. And so we gladly come to the table every week to partake in this meal. And we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to nurture this new nature that he's put within us. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the table, and I'm going to encourage every follower of Jesus to come and partake of this meal and to come at their own pace, thinking back on what Jesus has done and looking forward to what Jesus will do in the future as he is making all things new, that there is coming a day when Jesus will return and set everything right, remove every defilement from existence. He's, he's going to remove it all, and it's going to be a good day. And until that day comes, we partake in this meal and we live our lives in light of that reality. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table. If you're not yet trusting in the gospel, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table, but to consider why that is. Perhaps something is clicking within you and you feel something happening and you're wondering, well, maybe Jesus is is trying to get my attention. Maybe he's wanting me to stop relying on superficial non-solutions and come come to his epic solution in the gospel. And if that's the case... There's a couple of prayers on the back of your teaching outline that provided to help give you language to what you're maybe sensing, to help give you some words that you might help you process maybe what you're feeling. And just read through those, reflect upon those, pray through those, and then talk with me or talk with someone else that you know here who may be a follower of Jesus that would love to celebrate what may be taking place in you right now. But until then, we're going to continue worshiping together, whether coming to the table or prayerfully reflecting in your space. Let me pray. Father, I ask that you would give us grace now that your Holy Spirit would administer the gospel to our lives, nurture our new nature in Jesus. Thank you for cleansing us. Thank you for purifying us. Thank you for giving us new hearts and making us new people. We are pressing into that in this moment in Jesus' name. Amen.